Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman. I am the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. In this episode, I have the pleasure to record with a very special co-host, Heather Isfran. Heather and I are discussing a topic all too often seen in today's news and often referenced as an epidemic. Whether you're scrolling through social media or watching the evening news, it's hard to miss reports of school shootings. Almost before the scene has been secured and facts collected, analysts, activists, and social media have fired up their rhetoric. We are inundated with arguments furthering gun restrictions, which are simultaneously countered by those advocating arming teachers. Tensions rise amidst claims of racism over the Twittersphere, such as mental illness when the shooter is white, but terrorists if they're brown. Critics attack local law enforcement for not intervening because everyone knew that kid was off. The inherent need to keep our children safe from those that wish to harm others, be it by cyberbullying, the stress of underperforming, or the child that wants to become infamous before taking their own life brings in those that have the quick fix. The latest in personal body armor or the ability to design infrastructure to harden any facility. But what supports all the rhetoric around this issue? Facts or emotions? This episode of Homeland, the podcast, kicks off our three-part series focused on school shootings. In this episode, we speak with Desmond O'Neill and David Reedman, who walk us through the origins of the K-12 school shooting database they developed while attending the Advanced Thinking and Homeland Security Program, also known as HSX, offered at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. So let's not waste any more time and welcome Heather, David, and Des. We're here today at the Naval Postgraduate School uh, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, and we're joined by Desmond O'Neill, Heather Isfran, and David Reedman. And what we're going to do today is we're, there's a major topic uh, and even considered epidemic in the community or in our society about school shootings. So you two created a database related to K-12 through school shootings, and that's what we're going to discuss today. But before we even get started on that and get your guys' bios and to figure out who you are, we have Heather Isfran from the center, and she's going to give us a little breakdown of what the school is and the background of it and some of the programs and how we got here today sitting in this room. Super brief history. After 9-11, a group of very forward-thinking academics discovered we would need to communicate with disciplines, uh, amongst disciplines. At the time, FIRE didn't speak with police. They didn't speak with the emergency management, public health. Everybody was pretty siloed. So Congress, in their great wisdom, funded a program here, a center here at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, very small, one little classroom. But the idea was to generate a cadre of leaders, people that could think critically at the local, state, tribal, territorial, and federal levels so that they could all come together and collaborate because they are on scene together when they have to respond, when they have to plan and mitigate. So why not have them think about, write about the critical issues that they have to deal with in their agencies and then collaborate together. 15 years later, we have a master's degree. We have an executive leaders program. We also have a wonderful program called Advanced Thinking in Homeland Security, otherwise known as HSX. And HSX was something where we had all these great masters, great brains, people that did really cool things. What if we had a program that would develop a national level project, something that everybody could learn from, a blueprint, if you will, 
of something that we could put out on a national level with the people that graduated from our master's program, the best of the best, if you will, or as Bella Vita might say, the best that were available. But uh, Dave and Des represent just an amazing group of folks. We had them in our master's program, but then we took them again for another 18-month program. It was very highly experimental at the time. Think about DARPA. Think about projects that they do, very forward-leaning, very different. If you had resources, what kinds of projects would you do? If you didn't have to think about your job every day, what kinds of things could you do to make these critical issues in Homeland Security kind of less critical? That's a nice little thing you said about the people who are the smartest and those available. Um, I was available. I guess I wasn't the smartest. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, call, I'll stick to the podcast yeah. and just keep talking to the smart people because it's nicer that way. Des, why don't you give a quick little bio about who you are, where you came from, and it could last 10 minutes. Got it. 20 Got minutes it. is fine, too. Probably will not. So I've been in law enforcement for about 24, 25 years. Started Midwest guy, so I started working on my undergrad in criminology, and I was a corrections officer for a couple of years. And then when I graduated from college, I was a police officer in the St. Louis area. So I was a police officer about five years, on a tactical team for about three, and then I went to the U.S. Secret Service in Chicago in 2002. So I spent about seven years in Chicago as a special agent. I went over to the polygraph program, and then in 2009, I left the Secret Service and went to Homeland Security Investigations as an agent started doing a lot of international polygraph exams at the time. And then in 2014, I was promoted up to Office of Professional Responsibility or Internal Affairs in, in ICE. And so I've been in that position in New York, which is currently where I am, for about five years now. And while I was in this promotional phase, the opportunity to go to CHDS and the master's program was presented. And so I got in that program in about 2015 did the thesis. 2017, I graduated from that. And then that was right about the time that HSX was starting. And so I was blessed off by both the center and my supervisors to roll right from the master's program into another 18th month program with uh, HSX. And not knowing what I was getting into, but knowing when I was told that it was going to be completely opposite of the master's program. And it actually turned out to be quite that. So it was pretty good. You, you were the only person that was in that class, by the way, that rolled right in. Yeah. yeah you have yeah. very understanding uh, leadership there. Yeah. Very forward-thinking leadership. They, they, they were way. very good. They were very good with that. They were very understanding. My immediate supervisor was, you know, very supportive of the whole thing. And I've been lucky to be in that position based on that, for sure. That's great. Yeah. David, I, I met you originally in 2014 at the National Homeland Security Conference. So I've been fortunate enough to know him for a little while. Tell us about who you are and what your background is. Yeah, when I first met you, Frank, I was working as the Homeland Security Advisor for the downtown D.C. Business Improvement District, really thinking about how Homeland Security, especially grant funding and UASI funding, could really be implemented at the community level in a high-value uh, downtown area. I was also in the master's program at that time. But really, my FEMA and DHS experience started far earlier. I've been in the fire service for 17 years. Started with FEMA during Katrina. I was down there a couple days after the flood in New Orleans and then worked across different components of the agency. So I was really happy to get the invitation to come back for HSX. And I really had a focus on responder communications coming in, an area that I think still needs a lot of work. But then this database project just came out of nowhere, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Well, that's a nice little segue into what we're going to talk about. The K-12 school shooting database, where did that come from? Is it drawn out of a hat? We were in residence in March of 
what last year I think, and it was shortly after the uh, the Parkland shooting. And as a result of that, as a cohort collectively in HSX, we thought that one of the best things for us to do would be to get really smart on school shootings and kind of understand the complexity of them. And then when we came back in July, three months later, we would talk about that as a group, you know, the things that we kind of came to understand over that three-month period. In the scope of that, everybody went in their different directions in terms of how best to approach becoming, you know, an expert in, in school shootings and what that was. And so David had called me one day, you know, he would, him being in D.C. and me being in New York, he called me up on the phone and said, hey, I have this really good idea that I think that we can look at this, these school shootings similar to a terrorist staircase, you know, in terms of regards to like these touch points and, and how one thing would transition to the other. You know, let's look into this and maybe look at it from that perspective. And so that's what we started to do. And we started to look at that, but we thought the best way to come up with an understanding of what these touch points were was to start looking at all the data that was already out there. And, you know, what was available to us, we found was not as comprehensive as we thought. We thought that there would be this, like, singular point where we could be like, okay, here's all of the school shootings that, that they have. And we didn't find that. And so as a result of that, we found all these different databases, and some of them were missing, you know, uh, several reports that another one had, and or a lot of them just weren't inclusive in regards to anything beyond the, the, the date and the location, nothing about the incident at hand. And so what we decided to do was, why don't we just start our own? So I'll let you kind of pick it up from there. And we never intended to build kind of a public product. We were still focused on refining a, a threat assessment methodology. But as we started to identify incidents and that weren't reported anywhere else, a lot of the school shooting reporting is based around the number of fatalities. You know, if four or more people weren't killed, it doesn't make the threshold for most of the federal government's studies on this and a lot of the media reporting as well. So we started seeing, you know, some near-miss incidents, some things that kind of were out of left field that weren't recorded anywhere else. And we thought it it's important to document these. So we took a step back from the threat assessment and really said, let's dedicate the next couple weeks to starting, let's put together a spreadsheet of all the different incidents that we could find you know, for the last 20, 30 years, and then we'll see where that takes us. And that's something that just snowballed and snowballed until you know we got into the summer of, of 2018, and we'd compiled a list of close to 1,000 incidents at that point. Yeah. Uh, and we were convinced that we needed to shift our focus into making this a public product I and mean, having this be a project of its own. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really amazing how this just continued, it was, was uh, growing and started one component and then just morphed into something a lot bigger. There was a quote in, I think it was August, on yeah. NPR's Morning Edition. Uh, it's, I wanted to see if it took the, maybe it irked you guys a little bit, but I'm just going to quote it. It was, how many times per year does a gun go off in an American school? We should know, but, but we don't. How did that affect you when you heard that? The, the irony of the timing, because our initial plan was to release this first iteration of the database in early September when we were going to be back in HSX. And that came out, like, I think maybe August 26th or something along the lines of that. So it was almost one of those where maybe looking back now, it was karmic for the fact of up to that point, now it's been made you know, publicly known in some regards that there is no nothing out there that, that does that. And then shortly thereafter, we launched that. So initially we looked at that, we're like, wow, that really kind of, you know, answered our own questions. But then we use that as kind of a catalyst being like, this is why I think that we need 
what we have because there is no one platform where anybody can gather this information. And as far as as important as, as this is, as important of a topic that's it, that it is, you would think that that would be out there and it wasn't. I think that's what caught most people off guard. It's just like, well, the government's taking care of that, right? Somebody's doing this. Somebody else over there is. And that's initially what we thought. And that's why I think we stumbled into this with no real direction. We didn't look at this and be like, hey, why don't we build this database to, to release to the public? We're like, why don't we just find this for our own understanding so we can be better in different area? And it's good now. It was a lot of trial and tribulation, a lot of disagreement between Dave and I in terms of like how we wanted to, what we wanted to include. And we'll talk about, you know, the, how we decided to include certain things and exclude certain things in some regards. But it's definitely been a journey. And I do think that that article kind of sparked like this next phase of our database. It did seem like a milestone. One of the really important parts of this database is that it goes back 50 years. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's important. It also has a, a research methodology with it that you can find on our website as yeah. well. I was just thinking when you were saying that, your research methodology, but really what were the parameters? I mean, this seems to like it, was, it grew organically throughout the whole process. Yeah. So what were some of your parameters and maybe the definition of what you guys consider to be a school shooting? Yeah, so we went very backwards into this project. If we'd intended to create a publicly accessible database that could be an academic resource from the start, we would have structured the project completely differently. Yeah. Instead, it was, <laughs> let's spend a couple of weeks collecting information just as our own repository. And then all of a sudden that developed. We realized that we hadn't done things like write a rule book for our inclusion and exclusion criteria for each data point. So we sat down about three or four months into the process and realized we need a peer-reviewed research methodology. And that went through the CHDS staff here, um, and it's now available on the website. With that, kind of its companion piece is there's the raw data spreadsheet is also available on our website. And it has one tab with the data and a second tab that has our rule book. And for each column, you can see what we were thinking of, how the terms are defined, and what we include and exclude. If we'd done that from the start, this would have been uh, a much smoother process. I'm sure there's a lot of academics listening to this being like, yeah, you guys are idiots for not doing it like that. Because we were literally like two or three months into it. And I'm like, how are you coding suicides in, in regards to like, you know, in immediately surrender or, you know, and Dave's like, it's in the definition. And I looked and realized at that time, like I was doing something completely different than Dave was. And so there was a lot of times where we'd have this epiphany we would have to go back and be like, oh, we should think about including this statistic. And, you know, at that time we, we have 600 cases. And so then we have to go back to all 600 of these and look up the information to try to put that back in. So it definitely was building the plane while we were flying it. Well, I'm really happy it was you two doing it, not me. So yeah. thank you for not asking me yeah. to be part of HSX. That's a, I'm really happy right now. And we ultimately didn't settle on the definition that's on the website until really the week of the public release for this. So our our spreadsheet had a number of different tabs. So we had a tab for the mass shootings. We had a tab for incidents where guns were fired, but people weren't injured. We had some where they were unconfirmed because we only had a single source. And so the last piece was deciding on our definition, which was each and every instance a gun is brandished is fired or bullet hits school property for any reason, regardless of the number of victims, time of day or day of week. That was kind of the culmination of the research project that this is going to be our parameter. We've got information way across the board. 
everything that fits this definition is going to go into the spreadsheet that ultimately gets released. We've got a lot of information outside of that that we haven't figured out what to do with. We've been tracking reported threats without shootings, averted incidents, near misses, and that's something that we hope this can expand in the future to be more than it is now. And not only does this not have an agenda, but it's open source so that uh, the public can contribute to it so that they can correct and add and make it more robust. So how do they do that? On the website, they can go into that, and it's www.chds.us slash ssdb for school shooting database. And so within that, within the research methodology and the way that we explained all of this, there's a place in there for comments. And we're invested in this project, but not emotionally invested in it to the point where like, we want people to correct it. We want people to find errors in it. And if there is something that we've missed, we're asking people to offer that information. And we're still going through and verifying a lot of the information. And so you bring up a great point that being that it's publicly available, all the information that we found was through public sourcing, whether it's through historical newspapers or just the internet. And so based on that, there's simply going to be you know, mistakes in that, whether it's, you know, input mistakes maybe on Dave's behalf, obviously not mine, um, you know, or something else within the, within the reporting criteria. And so we're looking to, you know, this is, it's very agnostic. There is no, as, as you said, Heather, there's no agenda to it. Uh, the numbers are what the numbers are based on the definition. And we want it to be more inclusive as opposed to exclusive for the simple point that people can go and they can exclude information. And, and Dave brought up a, a point a couple days ago that, it's much easier to exclude something when you're trying to make a point than having to go in and find further data yourself. And so we've done the finding the further data part and using that as at least a starting point for us. Yeah, the, the raw data spreadsheet is on the website, and you can go in and, and look either vertically or horizontally and see that it's been standardized. Everything is either a drop-down or a select or a yes-no or a numeric value. You know, a funny story is we were scrubbing this for the public release, which, you know, was really all of September was sleepless nights. We were terrified that we'd either made mistakes or missed big incidents and so on. But at some point, we had been entering unknowns for things that we didn't know. And we realized that we had unknowns labeled as UNK, UKN, unknown lowercase, unknown capital, question mark, X, We'd never standardized something as simple as we the way we... never had that conversation. I thought unknown. unknown was UNK, and he thought it was UKN, and I just, you know... So he was obviously wrong with that again. Yeah, so we spent hours just kind of scrubbing and standardizing. All the things were, if you were going to do this with the intent of having a public academic product from the start, never would have happened. We learned as we went. We made a lot of mistakes as we went. Luckily, when it was released, overall, very positive. It's been reviewed by a lot of different sources. A lot of people have used this data. They look at the research methodology. They've had questions. They've sent us emails online. Um, People are taking subsets of this to work on their dissertations and work on theses. Media sources feel comfortable citing it as a number for incidents by year. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. But there's also negative. And so on some of those negative, uh, what are the, the, uh, some of the issues that they might try to say? And, 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 and what they bring up, do they substantiate or invalidate some of your findings? It's, it's opinion, meaning that it's, you know, what we include or exclude. We had to, one of the, you know, we started in 1970. We just had to pick a parameter. We thought about 50 years was a good starting point. 
And really, you know, prior to 1970, it really became much more difficult just to find things, you know, in the 60s and before from the newspapers, because that's what we've been resorted to. So outside of starting at the, the date that we did, we really tried to capture everything. And, you know, based on that definition, that's going to include, you know, gang shootings. And there's databases out there, a lot of the government databases that don't include gang shootings, or they include suicides. They include accidental shootings. So these are the things that by def- our definition fit into this where people, uh, you know, individuals look at that and be like, well, you're using that to inflate the numbers. But our argument is, for instance, a gang shooting. If there is a gang shooting, but it takes place in a school in the hallway and, you know, two or three people are injured, they're students, and then there's some bystanders that are injured as well. It may be a gang on gang shooting, but there is a lot of implications that come from that in terms of the school response, in terms of first responders' response, in terms of lockdowns. So we didn't want to miss that. You know, the same thing in terms of you know an accidental shooting where you know a, a young child, you know, a, a kid is throw, showing a uh, gun to his friend and accidentally goes off. There's protocols within the school that you know start to uh, take place in regards to that. And so we wanted to be able to capture those things as well. So when you look at the numbers, they're like, wow, these numbers are really high. And you're putting all these things in there that we don't you know, think need to be in there, which again is the whole point of that. A lot of criticism has come from including airsoft and BB and pellet guns in the shooting data. And that, that's something that we questioned quite a bit, but there were a couple points yeah. that, that really we decided justified including it. The first is that students that had fired the toy-type weapons and guns were charged with felonies, such as assault with a deadly weapon. There was an officer involved shooting at a school where the student had an airsoft gun, and it was determined to be a justified homicide because the officer was facing deadly force. And then there have also been precursor incidents. There's a famous school shooting from the 80s where a woman in her 20s with some mental health issues who lived across the street from the school said she didn't like Mondays and decided to shoot up the school and get into a long standoff with police. There have been a number of incidents where she had fired a pellet gun at that school um, and broken windows and been criminally charged before her attack with a real gun. So we thought that the idea is let's give people as many data points as possible. School shootings are, are very isolated. Over a 50-year period, we found 1,350 incidents that fit that definition. That's not a lot of data. That's not big data on this. So any single point that's relevant to the topic, we should provide that information so that people can study it. If you want to know the precursors leading up to a school shooting, be able to look at 200 incidents or 400 incidents or 500, not the 20 that fit you know, a very small definition. And what do people use this for? I mean, the greater public. What are the exceptional uses you've seen coming out of this so far? I think what you're starting to see is, as this is be, you know, since 2018 has been the, the year of the, the most amount of school shootings by far. And that's really drawn a lot of public attention. And as a result of that, it's also drawn a lot of taxpayers' money to be spent in terms of how do you protect, you know, the nation's youth. And what do you do with that finite amount of money? Is the money being spent in a way that's backed by data that shows this is the best thing to do with, it, with the money? And so you have the law enforcement community and you have the, the school community and you have all these, you know, the politicians and all these different people are trying to make these decisions based on how do we protect our kids. And at the same time, you have a lot of uh, private companies and businesses making 
products that parents can use, you know, whether it's bulletproof backpacks or different security blankets to throw over the doors. And these things are all valuable. But if you're just being driven by, you know, emotion in regards to we have to do something, we all understand that. But you should have at least a way or a source to go to to say this is what the data shows where if I have to spend the money, it's best to spend it in this capacity. And so that's what we're just trying to offer people when they're starting to come up with ideas on how to respond or what to spend money on or what to do with our, our children. Let's draw that information from someplace that's factual, not emotional. Yeah, so some of the things, maybe the trends that you've, seen, that you've noticed um, – where maybe the school shootings have occurred inside versus outside. Has there been a shift in trends over the years, have you noticed, or has the effects of hardening schools inside shifted to being outside, or can you correlate that type of data to come up with some direction people can use to come up with their policies or procedures? Most of the school security investments right now are so new that looking at trends or looking at changes is going to be something that happens years in the future. What we have right now on the website is you can click on the upper left and there's a spot for graphs. And there are a number of Tableau graphics where they pull from our raw data, they're updated in real time every time new incidents are added, and they provide a very linear look at some subsets of the data. So for example, where the incident occurred. And one of our novel findings has been that the majority of incidents happen outside of the school building on school property. As Des was talking about, the fortifications and bulletproof items in the classroom, backpacks, bulletproof chalkboards, ballistic classroom doors, are not going to have impact on more than half of the incidents. Even within the school, they're occurring in the hallways. They're happening in cafeterias, auditoriums, entryways, at all different times of the school day, when students are arriving, during lunch, during dismissal. So we think about the school shooting in a very specific scenario. I think people know so much about Sandy Hook. They think about that there are some students sitting in the classroom. The shooter is able to make entry to the school. They get into the classroom, you know, and then the the Sandy Hook scenario plays out. In reality, they're happening lots of different times, lots of different places within school property for a lot of different reasons. And just the complexity of this issue is really what surprised us. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. There's not a single classroom fortification that will solve every one of the incidents. And a school system needs to look at this data and allow that to drive their decisions and their investments. Right now, a lot of data, a lot of the the different parameters you've done, the the definitions. But real-time, real incidents that have occurred that are out of the norm. Maybe you guys have some examples that you wanted to share so people understand the differences. It's not just the Columbines or the other mass shootings that we're seeing. Things on a smaller scale that don't make the national news. The most interesting incidents that we found are from the the early 90s and the 80s uh, where they're, they're not in any reports anywhere. So example, in 1990 in Fort Worth, Texas, there were three different teens, uh, joyriding in a car. They didn't have permission to drive. They went past an elementary school and they had a 22 pistol and they fired the pistol from the car and struck two students on the playground. They had really minor injuries. Fortunately, you know, 22 pistol from a distance is not a lot of power, but the police ended up releasing the 16 year old gunman to his father for punishment. And the father took a branding iron with a 22 on it and branded the kid with the hot iron. And that was the punishment. Okay. So that was 30 years ago. Wow. 
another one that really jumps out because there are these anomalies for so many different cases. So you think about the threat assessment and the student that has severe mental health issues and is it outcast and bullied and so on. So still in 1990 in Indiana, the shooter was the son of a police officer, very high-performing student, very well-liked, but he came into the school, he held, held 15 of his classmates and one teacher hostage at gunpoint for six hours. And the whole time he had a loaded pistol, but he ended up surrendering to police. It's not in any other database because he never actually fired. And it turned out that he was upset because he was going to be suspended over a minor prank at the school and a very well-performing student and was very high-strung over that. That's a very important data point to be able to think about and realize uh, kind of the complexities of these situations. The kids joyriding, you know, just didn't have anything better to do in a small town to the well-liked, high-performing student who gets wound too tight and takes his whole class hostage for the day. And so both of those, when we looked at that, like, you know, they seem like outliers, but then how do you fit those or don't fit those into your definition? And this is how our definition really started to grow because both of those have an impact. You know, one of them is, you know, shooting from an off property onto property. You know, two kids are injured. There is, you know, a lot of things that have to take place with that in in regards to the school and first responders. And the second one is the same thing. Just because a bullet isn't fired doesn't mean that all the other mechanisms, you know, don't take place. And so, you know, it was only later where David and I had this, you know, very interesting discussion in regards to do we include brandished or not. And at the end of it, it's it's a matter of saying that if we're just trying to collect the data for the purpose of people being able to look at that in terms of looking at how first responders show up or looking what the school does in lockdown scenarios, then, then you know, in the brandishing aspects, those things come up. So that's what we included those, which... You know, when you're when you're calling a school shooting database, people are like, well, there's no shots fired, then that just bumps up the numbers. But again, it's not we're not looking to make it. It's not a numbers game for us. We're not looking to you know have the most numbers out of any database. We're looking to have the most complete amount of information. So, and and incidents that are not captured anywhere else, I think, is what really yeah. drove us to keep doing research, to keep looking at the news archives. You know, just one more case that came out is so important, but you know, is not anywhere else. 1988, in Virginia Beach, a student goes into the school, has a Mac 11, a semi-automatic pistol, multiple pipe bombs, and Molotov cocktails. Goes into the classroom, shoots and fires at the teacher, killing the teacher, turns the gun on the class, goes to fire, and it's a Mac 11, a very unreliable weapon, and it jams. And he's immediately tackled by the other students. So the student had ammunition staged throughout the school, it was going to be kind of a multimodal attack with the pipe bombs and fire bombs. That could have been an absolute massacre. Instead, it goes down as, as one teacher killed by a student in a shooting, and the rest of that data is lost. But we really want to be the stewards of showing that this is a complex issue. There were things like that happening in 1988, before violent video games, before social media, before anything else that, that we want to kind of pin school shootings to. And there's a lot of information to study. So that, that's interesting, uh, the different data points. And right now what's really the hot topic is making more restrictive gun laws, passing different legislation, saying how the AK-47 or the M4, whatever weapon it may be, the rifle seems to be the target audience. Does your data support that? Actually, what we ended up finding was, in terms of all school shootings, we had the highest number of 
the gun that was used most often was a handgun, right? And a lot of that was just the one-on-one conflict. And so the use of a rifle was much, and we'll, I'll, we'll have to pull it up on the, on the data, but it was much lower in terms of what was actually used. And it's interesting because it does, it has the, the, you know, the, the highest propensity to cause the most damage in that aspect of that, but it's not used as much as I think we or society has this belief in terms of what it is. You know, there's, there's a lot of, we do have, how many, 71? Do you know, remember what the number was in terms of like rifles being used? But even with some of those, you know, if you look at the totality of the, of the shootings that took place with a rifle, even some of those, the interesting aspect of that is, that, you know, there was, you know, an instance where, you know, a, a student was shot through a school window, and later under investigation, they found out that it was from a hunter like a mile away, and he had, you know, overshot his target, and unbeknownst to him, had struck the school and struck a student inside the school. And so it's categorized as, as a rifle in terms of that, but it's not... The typical, you know, a student shows up with a rifle to cause mass, you know, mass casualties. I think, I just, I think it's really important that what, what people, the general public hears in the media yeah. can, can escalate uh, unnecessarily and that the evidence and the data would suggest otherwise. And yeah. so it's, I think it's just a really great resource to be able to go and say, hey, is this really what I think it is. I mean, it comes to what we uh, teach in our master's program: evidence-based yeah. solutions. Yeah, this is this is more of a data-driven policy or procedures as opposed to an emotion-based. Absolutely. One. Yeah. It, it's also important to remember that a lot of these incidents could have been worse if the students had had access to other weapons. So, in a lot of cases, we found that it's not only pistols that are the most common, uh, but it's twenty-two caliber uh, is the most common type of weapon used. And kind of our, our finding from that is that 22s may be more accessible to kids that we've been tracking where the weapons came from. And in a lot of those cases, it was taken from a drawer or a garage or grandma's purse and so on. So the shooting was carried out with a 22 pistol. If the student had had, had access to a, a 40 caliber or a 45 or a 223 rifle, it could have played out much differently. Um, a lot of these were based on what was accessible to the student. It was their target gun. It was the gun where they knew uh, where it was in the house. With your project, how are you going to sustain this? I mean, it, it seems to me that the amount of data that's always coming in, uh, it, it's overwhelming. And you guys scrambled a lot to get this done, but it's not a one and done. This is a living document. And, and in order to keep it sustained, I mean, I, I look at you're going to need money, you're going to need personnel, you're going to need a whole bunch of different items. And how are you looking to continue this? Yeah, so we recently set up a nonprofit foundation that we hope can sustain this into the future. We established the School Shooting Research Foundation with the sole mission of providing data-driven information about K-12 school violence. Are you working on any grants or are you trying to get maybe CHDS to take it over for you? Or It's really important that this is a product of CHDS. It started here. There's a stamp of authority that it has through CHDS. It's been created through this community, through the academic leadership here. We really want this to be something that can be a flagship where, as we have this national debate around school security and people are looking for answers and people are looking for best practices, the center has had um, that role in the terrorism discussion for so long and the multi- multidisciplinary approaches to homeland security. This is now the biggest issue for America's youth. So in most of the polls, voters under 30, school security is their biggest issue. 
students you know, are fearing that a school shooting is going to happen, this is their 9-11. This is what they care about. And as CHDS continues to be relevant and at the forefront moving forward, we think that this is a product that can really inform policy at the federal, the state, the local, the community, and the individual school level. And we want to explore every avenue possible to make sure that the project's sustained. And we'll be very glad that you do. (laughs) No, I I think it's a really important part of research in an academic institution that you have something like this. And uh, certainly our students will be writing theses that cite it, numerous news outlets, getting proper information, good information, makes us all safer. In that respect, that follows our mission as well. That's great. Yeah, I, I appreciate the topic and the time you guys took today because it's such an important subject. I think we're going to go ahead and have this as our first of maybe three podcasts that are dedicated towards school shootings and, and different components and aspects of it. And I think what you guys have done here is an amazing project. So I appreciate it from uh, the fact that you guys joined me here on the podcast, but at the bigger level, the, the data and the use for the, the country and for the schools, I think it's going to be, it's pretty amazing. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. Appreciate Great work. It. Thank you. Every yeah. time a new incident is added, we up, update social media. So on Twitter, you can find us at K12SSDB, and that SSDB is for School Shooting Database. On Instagram, at K12SSDB, and the main project website, chds.us slash SSDB. And you know what? We're going to, because it's a lot of letters, a lot of SSDBs there, we'll go ahead and definitely put those in the show notes. Thank you for catching my my omission. But absolutely, if anyone has anything that we, they can contribute uh, or any questions, definitely reach out. Uh, and if you do go onto Twitter, pretty much every day or every other day, I see something that David posts on there related to K-12 and, and uh, definitely follow. Um, and with that, thank you. Awesome. Thank, thank you. Thanks, thanks, guys. Again. So, there you have it. Desmond O'Neill and David Reedman, developers of the K-12 School Shooting Database. What I found most interesting with this conversation is the organically grown, common-sense approach these two took developing, arguably the most comprehensive, open-source school shooting database available today. The thoroughness of the data points allows the researcher to cast a clear image around this topic. I found the breadth of information available not just fascinating, but enlightening. For instance, The data does not appear to support much of the rhetoric found within the social media sphere. Labeling these tragic events as an epidemic is wrong. With the exception of the year 2018, the data has remained consistent for almost 50 years. But what does this mean? Do nothing because the data contradicts most the most vocal? No, of course not. We must find means to protect our children, but how we do that matters. Using data-driven research to create actionable and well-thought-out policies and procedures provides a starting point for both sides of this debate to come together. It's a better use of limited funding and ultimately provides an increased level of securing those we care for the most. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this podcast is only the first of a three-part series dedicated to school shootings. Our next episode touches upon a high school shooting in the state of Maryland. We review training and intervention, and we'll take a look at some of the components of our pre-hospital and hospital care systems. For more information about the K-12 school shooting database, you can access the data at www.chds.us forward slash SSDB. Also, 
You can follow the progress of the database on Twitter at K12SSDB and also on Instagram at K12SSDB. As always, one last request. If you'd enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, please share it with your friends and your peers. If you would, also leave us a review and subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host, and until our next episode, take care.